couple of episodes ago, I talked about how things really accelerate when North and Secord sort of stumble across this $800,000 left over after this, this sale of missiles goes bust. And they're like, huh, we could, we could use this money for the Contras. It's like free money. And then just some weeks later, they discover that Iran had no idea how much Hawk missiles cost. And now they're like, oh, shit. What we can do, okay, let's sell missiles to terrorists and then use the profit to buy weapons to send to our other terrorists in Central America. We see that, that Reagan's men sort of happen upon things along the way. They're not always these, these criminal masterminds who conceive of their worst crimes beforehand. And I wonder if something like this didn't happen in 1984. In July 1984, as Congress was preparing to pass the second Boland Amendment, that's the one that really shut down the official funding of the Contras and, and sent Reagan's men scrambling all over for money. Just as that bill was nearing passage, Medellin narco-trafficker and military dictator Manuel Noriega, he sort of up out of nowhere donates $100,000 to the Contras in Costa Rica, demonstrating really early on how helpful drug traffickers could be with all their sort of off-the-books cash sloshing around Central America. And then at the tail end of that congressional funding drought in 1986, as, as I covered in, in a previous episode, Noriega approaches Oliver North to help the Contra effort in return for cleaning up those revelations of, of Noriega's participation in narco-trafficking. And of course, North and Noriega work out some kind of deal. Now, is this Reagan's men selling cocaine? No. But it's clear evidence that we, that we do have written down right there in, in Oliver North's notebook that they were okay with letting narco traffickers do their thing unimpeded by U.S. officials in trade for help with the Contras. There was no mystery about where the cocaine was headed. It's, going, it's all going to the U.S. There's no mystery about that. And so I'm not sure how distinguishable that is from selling yourself. That is, if you're, if you're the cops, essentially. Washington are, are the cops on the narco-trafficking beat. And so how, how distinguishable is assisting or permitting from active selling? Then congressional testimony reveals that, <laughs> this is crazy, in, in a meeting with top-level DEA officials in Washington, Oliver North proposes that $1.5 million dollars that the DEA seized from the Medellin cartel in a sting, he pitches that that, that should be turned over to the Contras. And they're like, what? <laughs> the proposal, quote, shocked the room into silence. And they refused Oliver North's request. Anywhere North could find money, he took it. Just like with the Iranian arms sales and, and finding that Israeli money just sort of sitting around, we might see North and those guys as... as smart opportunists who, who saw things happening and, and figured out how to work it to their advantage. So did they plan with, with total foreknowledge, like let's figure out a way to, to traffic cocaine as another way to fund the Contras? N no, I mean, we can't say that. We can't say that, it, that, that, that it's an idea that they cooked up. We don't have any evidence of that. But they didn't conceive of the arms sales to Iran either. That was something that sort of just presented itself to them, and they took advantage of it. They didn't decide to use Manuel Noriega until he came to them for protection. What we can say is that there was drug trafficking all through the Contras. 
especially during those two years when, when their handlers in, in Washington, Reagan, North, Secord, those guys, were doing their, their illegal shit to keep the Contras together during that congressional funding drought. In 1989, the Kerry Committee that I mentioned in the last episode, they released their official report on their investigation in, into possible Contra cocaine connections. They write, quote, It is clear that individuals who provided support for the Contras were involved in drug trafficking. The supply network of the Contras was used by drug trafficking organizations, and elements of the Contras themselves knowingly received financial and material assistance from drug traffickers. In each case, one or another agency of the U.S. government had information regarding the involvement either while it was occurring or immediately thereafter. End quote. But how much would those government agencies admit? Never more than they had to at the time. So the State Department admitted in 1986, that is before any of these committees really got going, they admitted that a, quote, limited number of persons trafficked cocaine. But again, that's in 1986, before these investigations started. The next year, in front of the big Iran-Contra committee, CIA Central American Task Force Chief Alan Fears, under oath, says about the Contras, quote, With respect to the drug trafficking by resistance forces, it is not a couple of people. It is a lot of people. Blame Reagan, blame Oliver North. Blame Oliver North. Blame Reagan, blame Oliver North. Of the United States vis-a-vis Latin American Central America. There has never been a time when a country made a revolution for the poor people where it was not overthrown by the CIA, overthrown by the CIA, overthrown by the CIA, overthrown by the CIA. There is substantial, copious, verifiable evidence that Reagan's men permitted the sale of cocaine into the United States by the Contras. Those supply lines from the U.S. to Ilopongo to Costa Rica and then back to the U.S., those planes were being used illegally to move weapons by north down to Central America, then loaded with narcotics and flown back to the U.S. That's known. That was determined by Senate testimony by many people. That's documented. There's no question in my mind there is a complicity in the flow of drugs into this country, period. But the entire case, again, verifiable and, and official, developed something of, a, a, of an infection in the late 90s. I don't know if I love that word, but it's the best I can think of. Infection. What, what I mean by that when I say infection is that all of this documented fact became sort of tainted by accusations of conspiracy theory and all this sort of talk. Not because it was suddenly dubious or untrue, but, but because once something gets labeled conspiracy theory, the people who like to think of themselves as serious people in, in journalism and the media, they have this reaction where they, they tend to cleave to power. They, they tend to, to discount the whole story in the service of power. And of course, they're being encouraged to do that by the powerful. And that's why I describe it as a kind of infection. The whole thing eventually becomes sort of totalized as a conspiracy theory. It's a weird move where, where journalists sort of reverse their roles and turn fact into fiction. This began in 1996 
When an investigative reporter for the San Jose Mercury News in California, he breaks a story that reveals what the Kerry Committee and, and other official government sources hadn't. Webb details that Nicaraguan pipeline that, that brought cocaine into Los Angeles in this really explosive series of stories. He brought us the story of Danilo Blandone and, and Norwin Meneses, those Nicaraguan Contra sympathizers and narco-traffickers who funneled their cocaine profits back to the Contras. And then Webb brought us the story of Freeway Ricky Ross, the principal dealer in L.A. who became the, the king of crack with this unlimited supply of cocaine through those Nicaraguan connects. Gary Webb, the journalist who, who broke the story, showed us how it all worked. That path of cocaine from Central America to the streets of Los Angeles, and then the path of the money back to the Contras. Webb's story explained how Ricky Ross became what prosecutors called the, quote, Walmart of crack, with that cocaine from his Nicaraguan sources, selling at his peak as many as half a million rocks a day, according to the LA Times. 500,000 crack rocks per day, every day. Ross became such a kingpin that he inspired the rap name for Miami rapper Rick Ross and Philly rapper Freeway. Freeway was, was Ross's nickname because he was trapping out by the freeway early on. Gary Webb's investigative journalism on this was phenomenal. He and his editor's worst crime was, was like a bit of hyperbole and sort of overselling a few points. Not the heart of the story. It was incredibly good investigative reporting from a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. But pretty soon there was this really weird backlash, which came primarily from other newspapers. This backlash attempted to, to discredit all of this stuff that Webb had reported in these articles without actually challenging his reporting, really. It was all, these, sort of, all this sort of quibbling about peripheral issues. But that came to constitute this attack on his whole story. Like, one of their big attacks was that Webb, they said, asserted that, that the large amounts of, of Contra cocaine literally started crack. Like, on Monday, there's no such thing as crack ever on Earth. On Tuesday, Contra cocaine shows up. And on Wednesday, there, there's crack in existence. That isn't what Webb said, but they sort of micro-analyzed his timeline of events and, and determined that, that he was wrong on this point, this point that he never really made. But instead of saying Webb and his editors sort of slightly missed on this part of a timeline or whatever, the thrust of their story sort of became, well, we shouldn't take any of it seriously. That became the takeaway that their quibbling over details at, at the periphery of Webb's reporting resulted in this idea that, well, the whole thing is, is somehow a conspiracy theory. And that's how the story became, like, infected. It's a bit like, okay, so what if you were to witness a murder and you describe to authorities the time, the place, the appearance of the killer, the, uh, the getaway, the license plate number, uh, let's say somehow he dropped his, his social security card and his driver's license on the way out, and you pick those up. And then someone comes along and says, yeah, but you got his hair wrong. His hair was sort of grayer and, and longer than you said. You, you said it was sort of close cropped and, and brown, and it's, and it's more grayish brown and, and a, little, a little shaggy. You overstressed the brownness of the hair.
What if messing up the hair part of the murder you witnessed ended up making your whole story suspect? Because a handful of these fancy elite newspaper people write a whole bunch of words about how messing up hair color and length is really shoddy murder witnessing. The story then becomes how you're a shitty murder witnesser. Even though a Senate subcommittee witnessed about 75% of that murder too. To extend that metaphor probably way too far out, then those elite newspaper folks happen to have working relationships with the murderer. And their unified story about you messing up the hair color slightly convinces the public to doubt your story entirely. And that's what I mean by infection earlier, that the whole story, all of those documented facts, got, got infected by attacks on the details uh, on the very periphery of the story. There were some weird relationships between the CIA and these big papers that attacked Webb. The CIA eventually admitted this, or, or they, they declassified some documents that reveal this. A recently declassified article from the CIA's internal journal is about these attacks on web stories by those, those few big newspaper editors. The CIA has a sort of internal newspaper thing, and, and this article was about how Webb's story would have become a, quote, unmitigated disaster were it not for a, quote, ground base of already productive relations with journalists, end quote, and the CIA's public affairs agents being able to sort of manipulate public opinion. The CIA author of this, of this article likens public relations events like this to a war. And like in a war, Gary Webb was destroyed. The backlash fueled by the CIA pressured Webb's editors, who had given the green light to the article and, you know, edited it. They were pressured to send Webb off to some bullshit bureau of the paper, another office like miles away from, from the central office. He's exiled, essentially. He leaves the paper soon thereafter and, and sort of gets blacklisted. So here we have this, this Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist, and, and pretty soon he's struggling to find work in journalism, his, his passion. His marriage falls apart, and in 2004 he's found dead from an apparent suicide. Now, now conspiracy theorists... Uh, you know, we'll talk to you about how he died from two gunshots to the head, which which is true. It was two gunshots. But, you know, I mean, that's that's highly unusual. But I'm not going to entertain this notion of a of a hit. This is a guy who'd, who'd lost his wife and, and any real access to his life's passion, journalism. I mean, sometimes folks do kill themselves when their lives fall apart. The CIA certainly did, though, kill Webb's articles. The CIA worked on reporters and editors across the country not to run stories that echoed Webb's reporting. They guided journalists on how to try to attack Webb's story, and they created a, quote, firestorm of reaction to Webb's series. All of this is detailed in that article from the CIA's internal newspaper. The L.A. Times, the paper that most ferociously attacked Webb's reporting, they devoted 17 journalists and 20,000 words in their paper to discrediting him, a much bigger effort than Webb's original article. Then the CIA, they trotted out guys like Dwayne Dewey Claridge, this sort of 
unhinged CIA guy in Central America during Iran-Contra. I don't think I've mentioned him, but, but he, was, he was always in the mix. Here's him in response to an ABC News reporter about Webb's allegations. Don't give me the, don't give me the conspiracy bullshit. Come on. You're, you're a more intelligent man than that. Come on. Come on. I mean, come on. This, this, this there has never been a conspiracy in this country. <laughs> See, guys? There's never been a conspiracy in this country. Not, not once. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think this guy doth protests too much, right? I mean, fam, cool out. You're doing too much. There's no conspiracy ever, says Claridge. The same guy who admits to the CIA conspiracy that I got into in episode one, the coup in, in Chile to remove Salvador Allende, whose name Claridge like callously pretends not to remember. Dark time in which the CIA played a major role. That's right. They played a major role in over overthrowing, uh, what's his name? Uh, what's his name was Salvador Allende. Yeah, fine. Okay. He was democratically elected. Right. Okay. Is that okay to yeah. overthrow a democratically elected government? Oh, yeah, Is no, it okay? It depends on what your national security interests are. But like the CIA's work to, to lean on and, and influence these journalists after Gary Webb's Contra Cocaine article came out, the CIA built a propaganda operation to manipulate the public during Iran-Contra which is far crazier. The CIA created in the National Security Council something called the Office of Public Diplomacy, which, I don't know, it sounds nice enough. It sounds banal enough, right? But no, public diplomacy in, in CIA speak means propaganda. How to sell things to the public. How to fool the public. The Iran-Contra investigators in that big joint committee investigation, they wrote that the Office of Public Diplomacy, quote, did what a covert CIA operation in a foreign country might do. It attempted to manipulate the media, the Congress, and public opinion to support the Reagan administration's policies in Nicaragua. <laughs> let, let, let me read that back. This is what the CIA was doing. To the, to the United States during Reagan's Iran-Contra. They, quote, did what a covert CIA operation in a foreign country might do. It attempted to manipulate the media, the Congress, and public opinion to support the Reagan administration's policies in Nicaragua. And that's not from some conspiracy theorist. That's from a joint select committee, the House and the Senate. The CIA sent one of their senior propaganda specialists to the National Security Council to work with North and the White House on crafting a story that they could tell the public, tell the media, tell Congress about what was happening in Nicaragua or what they said was happening in Nicaragua. And this came from the president. This came from Reagan, as we now see in declassified documents. I often go back and forth on, on the worst parts of Iran-Contra, but the president directing the CIA to propagandize the American people and Congress is, is right up there. There are internal communications, now declassified, where guys in charge of this propaganda effort are moving, quote, troops. They call them troops and soldiers from the 4th Psychological Operations Group at Fort Bragg to the team to manipulate 
the public, and Congress. These are PSYOP specialists. Other internal confidential documents that would be declassified, they state explicitly that these propaganda actions are, are, are targeting us, the public, and Congress. The CIA, the National Security Council, North and Secord, and all them, and these, these propaganda troops, these PSYOP troops, are all working together to tell us and Congress a story, all set into motion by Reagan. Let's make sure we get this clear. PSYOP soldiers were borrowed from the military to manipulate Congress. This was begun because Reagan asked for it. And this is all for anyone to see in declassified documents. You can look it up. This was a CIA operation through and through. Now, it gets handed off to Oliver North and his guys at the National Security Council when Congress passes the Boland Amendment, but the CIA was still involved. They just weren't carrying out their own attacks and, and stuff like that that they had before the Boland Amendment. And part of what the CIA did was to create a, a public relations dimension to it all, to sell it to the American people, to sell it to Congress, to the media, to the international community. The CIA created something called the Contra Directorate that looked like this leadership council of the Contras, representing different sectors of, of Nicaragua during Somoza's time. But no, it was, it was just this, uh, it, was a, it was a PR stunt, effectively, by the CIA. One of the members of that Contra Directorate, Edgar Chamorro, he wrote this really revealing book about his time as a CIA asset. The Directorate so-called, was a group of, of seven Nicaraguans chosen and paid for by the CIA in the early 80s to be a sort of public face of their Contra army. But their, their only job was to really have, have press conferences and, and, and give CIA talking points. Chamorro was chosen because he had this background in public relations and, and business. He could, he could be one of those guys, quote, representing the business sector. And, and it, I guess it helped that he had public relations experience, but, but they didn't even utilize that, really. I mean, Chamorro is the guy that, that signed this $300,000 contract with this fancy marketing firm to design and, and run a, a marketing campaign for the Contra War. But the money was the CIA's, and the decisions were theirs, too, he says. He wasn't actually ever given any sort of real power or agency. He was, he was, a, he was a prop. Speaking of his CIA handlers, Chamorro writes, quote, They did not want us to function as a directorate as much as they wanted us to give the image of a directorate and to be visible, end quote. The only directorate member who really had any sort of power was probably Enrique Bermudez, who was chosen by the CIA because he was a former Guardia colonel under Somoza. We'll return to Bermudez later. But Chamorro provides a really helpful window from the inside into how the CIA designed a, quote, disinformation and propaganda effort, as he put it, to feed to the U.S. media to report on. The Contra War, as it was reported in the U.S., was largely a story that was being told by the CIA. And the directorate were these guys who, who, who uh, read lines. He, they, they read their lines for the CIA. 
there was an there was an actual war itself funded and directed by the CIA. But what we Americans heard here says tomorrow, quote, depended on disinformation for its very survival. But let's get back to the CIA in 1996. After these articles by Gary Webb reveal all these new details about that pipeline, you know, Webb really maps out how the cocaine gets from from you know, Colombia or, or Peru or wherever makes its way through Central America, through the Contras, into the United States, into L.A., and how the money gets back to the Contras. And then how the CIA freaks out when Webb reveals all of this. And so let's take the arguments that come from the CIA and, and are voiced by papers like the L.A. Times about what Webb reveals Let's sort of allow those arguments to stand. Let's, let's give them that. So they say that, that the cocaine from the Contras didn't literally spark crack into being, like some sort of Big Bang event. That's a big complaint they had, that Webb had said that. Now, Webb didn't say that, but, but let's give them that. It didn't literally start crack. The CIA, in that internal newspaper article that I talked about, they had problems over and over again with Webb's use of the phrase CIA's army to describe the Contras. That's another big complaint they had. Now, it was it was the CIA's army, but let's let's give them that. Let's just look at the Contras during that time of the Boland Amendment, when the CIA was forced to fall back and North and his guys in the White House took the reins, when they'd hijacked the NHAO all those humanitarian flights and created this super dark supply chain run by murderers and, and terrorists and, and international criminals. We can give the CIA and all, all those arguments that they have that end up getting sort of voiced through the LA Times and others, we can give them all that. There's still lots of cocaine being loaded onto U.S. planes and flown to the U.S. So here's what we do know. And from here on, I'm only going to refer to, to government investigations, congressional committees, testimony from those involved, admissions from participants. None of this is invented or concocted. None of this can be, and none of this was, disputed by the CIA. We know from the Kerry Committee that in each case of narco-trafficking, using that operation run out of Ilopongo, and this is when the CIA wasn't in the lead. Each case of narco-trafficking, out, out of this dark, mysterious airfield in El Salvador that nobody knew about, run by narco-traffickers and known terrorists, we know from the Kerry Committee that, quote, one or another agency of the U.S. government had information regarding the involvement either while it was occurring or immediately thereafter referring to instances of narco-trafficking. That is, they knew about it and didn't do shit about it. War on drugs, right? We know that, and this is again from the Kerry Committee, we know that pilots used in this off-the-books pipeline of weapons down to Central America, we know that pilots used by North were narco-traffickers. We know that Oliver North's men, after they'd hijacked that NHAO operation, 
that humanitarian aid operation to run that circuit of planes down to Ilopongo from the U.S., from Ilopongo down to Costa Rica, Honduras, sometimes who knows, and then back to the U.S. We know that North and his men chose four supply companies that were run and owned by narco-traffickers. Pilots were narco-traffickers, and they were flying planes owned by narco-traffickers. Documented. We know that the companies whose planes they used, those companies otherwise used those planes for narco-trafficking. We also know that, according to the Kerry Committee, that in each case, prior to the time that North and his men entered into contract with those narco-trafficking air shipment firms, quote, federal law enforcement had received information that the individuals controlling those companies were involved in narcotics, end quote. They knew ahead of time that these were narco-traffickers. We know that Jack Blum, lead counsel on the Kerry Committee, said that cocaine was coming into the U.S., quote, not by the pound, not by the bag, but by the ton, by the cargo plane load, end quote. We know that the essentially unlimited supply of cocaine arriving in Los Angeles through that Nicaraguan pipeline, at the time the crack was starting to emerge and eventually spread throughout the country, we know that that led to Freeway Ricky Ross getting kilo upon kilo upon kilo at prices lower than anyone to become what the L.A. Times called the, quote, Walmart of crack, and eventually build what the L.A. Times called a, quote, coast-to-coast conglomerate, a cartel. We know that Ross was sometimes fronted like 20, 25 kilos on credit, just fronted dozens of kilos, like a million-dollar street value worth of coke that he could just pay back. We know that Ross could re-up that quantity in just like a couple few days. We know that he was getting kilos cheaper than anyone. We know that Ross's connect, Danilo Blandone, through his supplier, Norwin Menezes, they moved tens of thousands of kilos. That's according to conservative DEA estimates. Ricky Ross says he had a virtually unlimited supply, which was why his cocaine was so cheap. We know that Blandone and Menezes met with former Guardia Colonel Enrique Bermudez and Contra Directorate member at a Contra base in Honduras in 1982. We know this because Blandone testified to Department of Justice officials about this. Enrique Bermudez, then a CIA asset as a member of their directorate, he told the two no-narcos to get money any way they could, and that, quote, the ends justify the means, according to Blandone. Manessis, also in testimony to the Department of Justice, he corroborates this. He corroborates Blandone and him working with Enrique Bermudez, who was, at the time, a CIA asset. He was on the Contra Directorate. And we know that in the subsequent years, Blandone and Manessis traffic uncountable amounts of cocaine, and that, in fact, some of that money was sent back to the Contras. We know that back in Washington, once the investigations start, we know that indictments were handed out to Reagan's men like Oprah was in charge. Damn near everybody gets an indictment. National Security Advisor Robert McFarlane, he pleads guilty to four counts of withholding information from Congress. His successor, John Poindexter, he's charged with seven felonies. Richard Secord, indicted on nine counts 
pleads guilty on only one felony, lying to Congress. Dwayne Claridge, indicted on seven counts of perjury and false statements. Alan Fears pleads guilty to two counts of lying to Congress. Elliot Abrams pleads guilty to two counts of lying to Congress. Casper Weinberger, five counts of various forms of perjury, lying, etc. In total, 14 people in Reagan's crew are indicted and tried. Oliver North is indicted on 12 counts, including making false statements and conspiracy. There has never been a conspiracy in this country. Not a single member of Reagan's team did a single day of prison time. Pardons were handed out by President Bush across the board to those facing prison. Meanwhile, the U.S. prison population was exploding with low-level drug offenders, primarily from black urban neighborhoods. America was being built into a carceral state. Unless you have power, unless you're in Reagan's administration. Unless you turn away as the narcotics are being shipped in by the plane load, then you're okay. You get caught with a crack rock, a single rock, and you're fucked. Of the United States vis-a-vis Latin America and Central America. There has never been a time when a country made a revolution for the poor people where it was not overthrown by the CIA, overthrown by the CIA, overthrown by the CIA, overthrown by the CIA. Over, overthrown by the CIA.